This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. How's it going, everyone? In this episode, we have the always exciting, always energetic Francesco Cipolloni. We talk everything cloud. We talk about going into the cloud. We talk about living in the cloud. And we even discuss getting out of the cloud. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out more episodes at hackervalley.studio. And as always, if you want to support the things that we're doing, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash hackervalleystudio. Let's get right to this episode. What's going on, everybody? You are back in the Hacker Valley studio yes, with sir. your hosts, Ron and Chris. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again. We have Francesco Cipolloni in the building. Yes. I've, I feel like I've known this guy my entire life, but it's, <laughs> it's only been this year. Same. He is all over the place. <laughs> he is all over Twitter. He's all over LinkedIn. He's doing talks. He's doing podcasts. He's doing right. everything in the world. Do you sleep at all? No, I don't sleep. <laughs> You're well, one of those people that like sleeps like three hours a night, isn't it? Four. 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 <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Have you always been like that? Like since as a kid? No, actually. No, I've, I've, I've been ramping up in, in, in engagements in the last three or four years. And that's in the last two years, I've been all over the place. As you say, it's like I've been doing more and more and more. And, and the more you do, the more traction you get, the more. You get to engage the less you sleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, uh, thanks for being here. Uh, you were actually in town to do a talk, and I think you have a, a panel also coming up. Right? Yeah, I was at the Cybersecurity Cloud Expo. I usually run the London one. We just happened that they invited us as a Cloud Security Alliance there here in, in San Jose. And yeah, we came and uh, we had my talk today. I went really, really nice. great. Yeah, about Security Phoenix, and we're going to talk about it in a second. Nice. And yeah, tomorrow we have a panel on regulation and how we can turn it around and say, well, can regulation actually be a driver for business rather than, you know, the boring talk about the regulation? I can right. kill everybody in the room talking about <laughs> regulation. <laughs> it's like being in banking is like some of my clients have every regulation literally so i can yes. kill you guys and every and all the audience about regulations like really not a fun topic to talk to right i i know most people at least most people should know at least your name but if for our listeners that don't know you if you could just kind of run through your background and how you got to where you are today that'd be great oh geez uh it's a long story and a crazy story actually so i started back in a university where i didn't even think about security but one of my professors actually was an inspiration on, on cyber. And it was like generic cyber. And I said, you know, I want to get involved in that. And he assigned me a really tough, tough dissertation work that turned into a research of almost a year. And at a certain point, I said, you know, I want to apply this stuff. And that, that's actually one problem of the Italian university. They're very, very high level. And you don't get the feeling of how you can apply that thing. And so I decided, you know what, I spin up my own company and I start teaching. So I start on uh, networking and uh, infrastructure as well as operating systems. So I was a teacher for Cisco and Microsoft for a little while. We did training all over the world. And that's how we got a lot of consultancy in my first company. And one of the clients was actually the UN. So mm. we started this like 
I did a class on IPS and IDS on how to fine tune and, and tweak it and stuff. And they said, you know what? We just bought one. Why don't you come and, and help us out? And then from oh, one nice. engagement to the other, we just wow. literally flatten out the network and just rebuild the whole infrastructure from scratch. Like really six years worth of project. I did mission in Afghanistan, Sudan. I was stationed in South Africa for a little while, in Bangkok wow. for a little while. It was really a roller coaster. It was emotional. It was intense. I did Haiti after the aftermath. So we wow. did the streaming of Hillary Clinton. We did set up on satellite connection, two megabyte satellite connection. It was like really challenging. And we did some mission like I didn't personally, but some of my colleagues went in Darfur. So really, really challenging places to be. And it, it did teach me one and one only thing to really appreciate to be in this world because we are really lucky to be in this side of the world. Yeah, so every yes. time I was landing, I was like, it really makes you appreciate the small thing, like clean water. Right. I was in Egypt that is not Tur Tur uh, country, well, third world, world country, country yeah. sorry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I got stuck in there. <laughs> and, I, and, and, you know, I was really careful with the water. And one day I just, you know, I, I washed an apple on, on the, the sink. And I didn't even think about it. I was sick for two weeks. Just like, washing an apple. Just washing. Sink. It's like yeah. Wow. And the other stuff I did uh, when I went back, I was actually in Tahrir Square when they were throwing Molotov during the revolution. We were actually sipping whiskey down there. It's like crazy. It's like two different parts of the world, and they put ice on the whiskey. And it's like I was sick for another way. Oh man. Wow. And you don't think about those things. Yeah. And after that, I just went to, to the UK. I started my own consultancy in there. We started working with the Cloud Secure Alliance, mm -hmm. uh, rebuilding the chapter and restarting the work uh, between UK and Ireland. I started getting more and more engagement for speaking. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of mentoring as well, and uh, specifically for women in cyber, but diversity is my subject of mentoring because I want to give opportunity to everybody and to, to teach. And you know, right now we are in a good space, but before, like four or five years ago, nobody was even talking about that stuff. Right. So we were actually pioneering a lot of the stuff, working with uh, women and, and people that wanted to, to break into this world. And yeah, we, we launched the podcast for that reason. So for people that are busy to reach out to most of the most of the people with like content mm -hmm. and yeah one thing after the other i'm like chris uh, we met online so yeah. we talk about this stuff we talk about the yeah. challenge yeah we started the following friday we did we started <laughs> yeah. the content anything content wise we, we start challenging each other and that's what i love about you guys it's like it's a positive challenge to get better at it's like building a community and, and having fun. Right. Yeah. Ultimately, it's having fun. The collaboration is yeah. huge. Yeah, it's out outstanding. Yeah, so for everyone that, that doesn't actually realize, I, I do uh, follow Friday every Friday on LinkedIn. And actually, my inspiration was you, Frank. You do, you know, religiously you do every <laughs> Friday. You do it on Twitter. And I was like, you know, I think, I think LinkedIn would be a great place to do it. Yeah. And it, it works. I mean, we were just featured in Forbes. I think that was... Yeah, it was amazing. It's crazy. It's exploding. I'm, I'm glad it actually went somewhere. But uh, yeah, so we got you here and we're going to have a, a great conversation. I, I know your field of interest is application security and, and cloud. And I, I hear that you have like a, like a 10 step process or not 10 step process, but like a, a 10 principles for, for security. Yeah, it's things. like... It's really starting simple is, first of all, get the understanding of your infrastructure, what you have, what you deployed, have people keep that information up to date. 
use whatever scanner you have. I mean, OWASP has a lot of stuff uh, out there like ASVS, and we have a lot of community-driven initiative to run the scanner. But I have the feeling that application security scanning is a very lucrative field, so a lot of people jump in. But really, if even if you want to do like the basic stuff, you, you'd be much better off than a lot of the organization. Visualize the hell out of everything, bring your organization along, monetize the vulnerability. If you talk to the board and you don't talk money, you're never going to get anywhere. It's mm-hmm. like you only scare them. Get, I mean, I see a lot of people doing training, but training blindfold is like, okay, here is a bunch of training. It's like, what can I, I have a lot of developers that says, I don't do anything with this stuff. Right. So we do data-driven training. So we learn about from the, the application security scanning what our dev are actually lacking of, and we do like hands-on training, training on the job, and we inform the trainers of these are the field like SQL injection, input serialization. These are the bad things that are happening in our infrastructure. Let's right. focus for a year on that. And that's how much? Eight, nine, probably nine. <laughs> nine. Yeah, probably, probably left so, yeah. some out. But yeah. it's like it's like focus on people. <clears throat> focus on people, focus on training, fo- focus on visualizing. Visualizing mm-hmm. is a hell of a technique, especially in big organizations. What kind of things are, are valuable for visualization and application security? What are some of the key points that might be good to start with? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question, Ron. So probably just start with the definition of high of how much is a, a critical vulnerability. Everybody goes around and say, you have bad things, you have bad code, it's a critical vulnerability. And for a start, it's really good because you can just say, you know what, I run my scan and high are high and it's fine. I can dump all that information, I can extract the information from any scanner, dump it in a database and then visualize it, for example, with a Grafana. Mm-hmm. And we might be able to uh, give out the community the extractor and the database that we build as part of one of our uh, program of work that is what I talk about security Phoenix and it's fundamental just visualizing this this information basic information and that's you get once you get better better at uh, visualizing information and and doing you know prioritization of okay I need to fix my highs but then the next step is are my highs really high mm-hmm. is some, can actually somebody exploit that vulnerability right. and in which part of the network is that specific vulnerability being deployed it's in production it's in development it just prioritizing the work because what I see myself, especially if an organization doesn't start from scratch in application security, you get tons of them. And then you say, bloody hell, where do I start? Mm-hmm. So it's all about prioritizing what work is actually necessary because otherwise developer would just, you know what, it's too much work. So it's saying just fixing one vulnerability per week for me works, but then it's deciding which one is the important one. So I, I tend to just say, you know what, pick the network location, Pick your most valuable application and just look at how much money does an application generate or chuck through. Then see what vulnerability is actually being exploited over the web. What are the trending? What are the easy ones that you can lift and shift? Mm-hmm. And just looking at CVE database, you can see there is a meta exploit module. Or even if you don't want to be as clever as that, you just go, you know what, which one are the high, the CWE that are considered high? Even right. that helps you prioritize it. Mm-hmm. So, and then you can go to the nirvana of prioritizing. It's like considering the environment as a whole. So right. work as an architect, consider, okay, do I have compensating control? Do I have a WAF? Do I have a firewall? Can somebody actually exploit this thing? And then ultimately, right. it's testing those vulnerabilities. That did, 
is for for me the evolution of triaging a vulnerability and prioritizing right. and it's the key so for me the program work is like prioritizing those vulnerabilities otherwise they just sit in a bed club yeah yeah and one of the keys that i think you mentioned earlier uh in your spiel was you know asset management slash application management yeah how how are you going to know what CVEs are going to be, you know, affecting you if you don't know what's in your environment? Correct. It's like in each organization that I go, I said, do you know your environment? If you don't, how can you deploy with confidence? How can you know what something breaks, what's going to happen? I was like, how can you not know your house? And even if you know 10% of your house, you're much better off at asset management. Right. And you can run really expensive program and really expensive tool to do asset management but really it's like network scan application scan it's like see what ports are open try to guess and that brings you much better and it doesn't cost you a fortune mm-hmm. and then start embedding this culture in the team that actually maintain the application so they maintain and say you know what i deploy here i declare what stuff i deploy where which server which is the repository so i can relate for example the scan that they do on a repository with where i deployed it and then i can test it Right. You know, it's, it's discipline, but it's, it's teaching development team what good looks like, and then they're going to follow. How do you think uh, cloud is going to affect everything kind of going forward with <laughs> application security? I know you're doing a lot of stuff with cloud security, yeah. so wanted to throw that softball out there. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what I'm always interested in is, like, the especially the stuff around cloud automation. I think that's uh, really exciting for me to see, like, how – we can use events from uh, cloud devices or applications in the cloud and automatically automate something about that event, maybe remediating it or right. just getting uh, a distilled body of information about the event. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, it all depends if you're using cloud as cloud, if you're not lift and shifting. So a lot of the organization that they see, they lift and shift stuff in the cloud and then you don't end up using the power of the cloud. Like, as you say, the automation element, the triggering up and down things, depending on if you if you receive an alert, then I can switch off the machines or stuff like that. Right. But if you just lift and shift, it just you're hosting your server somewhere else. So understanding how can you restructure your application, because there is a cost in it, but also an advantage. And a caveat, you get locked in. Mm-hmm. So we get a lot of talk on, especially from the regulator, on you need to demonstrate that you're multi-cloud, that you have an, ex- an exit strategy for cloud, but then you can't really use the best of the cloud. So it's like really a trade-off, first of all, on, okay, I want to move my stuff to the cloud. Fine. Which one do I re-engineer? Which one do I lift and shift? Second, do I have an exit strategy? Do I need to have an exit strategy? So some of the organization are forced for regulation. Mm-hmm. And then you get better at it and it's like, okay, I do my event log. I start running my run book with automation and Lambda to actually say, you know what, if a vulnerability, a critical high pops up in one of my server, you know, one day to another, I just kill the server and then I do the post-mortem and then that's the automation. Even smaller thing actually helps a lot. Right. But from an application pro- uh, security perspective, I see, you know, the more we go to the cloud, the more we use the full benefit of the cloud, the full breadth of the cloud, the less infrastructure we're going to have, the more up in the stack we're going to have, and the only thing we're going to effectively own is code. Right. right. So it's function, if, you, if you look at the whole training of function as a service, you, you have effectively a piece of code that runs in a preset environment. It's, it's just delegating the burden of actually doing security on the full stack and focusing on application security. That is bloody hard. 
Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so it's, it's becoming more and more popular. The application security people are going to be the stars of the, of the next world, the I next agree. security world. Because it's the only thing, data and application and code fundamentally is the only thing we're going to have. Yeah. Right. No, I, I completely agree. One question I do have for you is I know that there is value in having an extra strategy now. Extra strategy like coming back into something that's on-prem. Do you think there's ever going to be a point where on-prem is like super rare and almost like non-existent so that your exit strategy is literally just to move to another cl- cloud provider? Yeah, no, I, I think the exit strategy need to consider both. So right. one key thing in, in our exit strategy <clears throat> that we do for our client is do you have regulation that falls you on-prem? Mm-hmm. And specifically in banking, we have tons like Singapore or Indonesia or a lot of countries are actually forcing you on-prem for one specific reason. They don't know cloud. So we are teaching the regulator on how to know clouds and then you can go and say, you know what, I do a multi-cloud strategy. But we're so far off from that target. So sometimes you're forced by regulation to actually consider a cloud strategy an exit strategy that keeps you Mm on-prem or give you the option to switch certain part on-prem. A certain other, yeah, consider multi-cloud strategy. So I think the early stage of Terraformation and the, the independent Terraformation versus the cloud-specific one, like AWS had their own version. Right. It's like, okay, you can deploy stuff in, into your multi-cloud. So you have multiple cloud. But there is a cost in actually considering that. It's like, even if you just consider the backup, for example, you say, you know what, my multi-cloud strategy is going to be, I keep my backup somewhere else and I spin them up if and when uh, my major clouds get locked in or something right. happened. Right. Like Once what a happened? year or whatever. Yeah, exercise. whatever. If, if you're wise enough, you do a <laughs> once a year exercise. If you're not, something's going to die. It's like, okay, let's spin up this machine. Oh, the, the data is like one year back. Right. Oh, it's like no. if you're clever, you're at that stage. But the cost to actually export from one provider to another, the data is massive. Mm. And people don't consider that in a multi-cloud strategy. It's like how much is the cost to actually deploy and what is the risk-benefit balance? Right, right. So multi-cloud for me is like really putting on the papers like what's your cost of locking in versus what's your cost of multi-cloud? And if you're happy with the risk and the cost-benefit, go for it. Right. Have you seen uh, personally any shifts from one cloud to another? Like we're taking everything from AWS and putting it in GCP. Have you worked or advised those types of things and what is like a lesson learned like i've i've always been curious with those types of deployments what's a nugget that you've taken away from working with that if i can share my five percent and i'm not biased by any any cloud provider because i work with with all of them mm-hmm. i think azure and microsoft are really good at small and medium enterprise and just getting them in and it's really easy to use that that element if you have a very structured engineering and you want to use the cloud as like a Swiss army and, and shape it the way you want, you use AWS. Right. They're really good. There is a competition between, for example, AWS and Azure on the security center. They uh, Microsoft has spent so much money and effort, and Tanya is a good example of how much energy they put in right, uh, right. Tanya Janka for... Yeah, uh, she used to be the scout. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we started the mentoring Monday with with her. Actually, yeah, right. She she mentioned that. Yeah. So yeah, Microsoft spent a lot of money on that, and and AWS is catching up, and also GCP is catching up. So GCP, for example, is really good if you want to use uh, certain specific functionality like big data or analytics. They are really powerful at that, and they make it 
so easy. And they said, you know what, we're going to focus on this. We're not going to focus, for example, so much in the compute. And I think it had a decremental effect because they were a little bit later in the in the in the cloud party. Right. But as well, they made them really, really specialize on running machine learning, AI. They had pre-made uh, AI set for certain specific use cases and then a really good big data platform with analytic built on top of it with security ingrained. So, for example, on the big data one, they have shifting keys. So even if you get access to the information, it's crumbled because it's, it's, it's encrypted with different keys. That's really clever. Mm-hmm. And that's by default. So right. that's, that's where other cloud providers need to catch up. But they're fundamentally driven by the demand. So they are being shaped by the demand of the market. So AWS was engineering-led. Microsoft right. had the you know, mindset of small and medium enterprise. We get them in with um, the integration of uh, Azure AD and then Office 365. Yeah. They, have, they have an ecosystem that is really powerful to get people in really, really quickly. AWS, it's much harder to get into. Right. Mm-hmm. What do you think, guys? What's your take? So I, before we get, get to that, I, I really wanted to get his point because he said something interesting that, that kind of sparked my interest. Ron, you see all sorts of clients and customers, and we were just talking about the different usages of Azure versus AWS. Do you see, both on the infrastructure side and the application side, do you see clients forcing like utilization of those technologies just because like, oh, my buddy said use this, so I'm going to use it, and they didn't like <laughs> do their due diligence? It's like I, Buddy Cloud. Yeah, right. <laughs> buddy Cloud. Well, like. well, there those services are vendors, right? And I I see the same for even security applications. It's right. like, how did you guys get that? You know, <laughs> right. based off of everything else that you're doing, it doesn't really make sense why you would have that service. But yeah, I think in any organization, if you have, uh, there's a, a few things that might introduce that a creator, someone that's you know very creative that wants to push the edge with the mm-hmm. new services by those cloud providers or through the buddy program where they hear <laughs> they hear or know someone at the organization that has encouraged them to use that functionality. Yeah. But AWS does a great job at their brown bags. They host yes. like a lot and you'll probably introduce one of their services just by going to one of them because they do a great job of presenting the use case. Mm-hmm. And then how, how do you talk your your client and say, hey, y'all might want to check out something else because this might not be the best fit for your use case. Well, since I, you know, am in vendor land, I build it. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's true. Very, very true. You Touché. have a use case here. Yeah. Here's a, a nice package service. Touche, sir. Touche. Yes. Sometimes I forget he's a vendor. <laughs> but that's actually a quite interesting combination because you're in vendor land. You're in, in, in if you're on the customer-facing yeah, land, the customer I'm side, in yeah. financial world, but also vendor Netherland is my company. Right. So this is an interesting. It's an interesting discussion. Full blend here. It is. <laughs> it is. And and could you uh, reiterate your your question for us? Because I, I I wanted to make sure we caught the the differences between the two. But I, I wanted to get back to your question as well. I think I lost the question. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> he, he was putting the question back on us. So I think my answer to the question. What is, was the question? It, it was. Uh, moving. Oh yeah, from the multi-cloud. The multi-cloud. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. multi-cloud. Moving okay. from one provider. What's your experience in the multi-cloud? And and I talk about mine, and I went to a rabbit hole, and I lost. And I lost yeah, that yeah. <laughs> I think that Microsoft has done a great job at capturing a lot of interest by their you know cloud apps like PowerPoint, Microsoft Word is now in the yeah. cloud, so it's very easy to use it. Google Google Docs is 
somewhat easy to use. It's a little easier than what it used to be. Right. So there's a lot of opportunity, I think, for those providers. I'm interested to see if AWS is going to come out with some type of email or easy to use like storage solution so they could bring on more diverse customers. I don't, th- I don't think they're focused on, on their market. So they're really good at focusing on a specific market. Engineering AWS. related, like right. you're yeah. saying. It's like a Swiss Army tool. What Microsoft is saying, you know, my, my target is small and medium enterprise because I know them very, very well. GCP is trying to find analytics that is where their most customer base is. So they're trying to attack the easy customer base right. uh, thing. What's your experience with cloud? Yeah, so, I mean, we're kind of, uh, I guess, multi-cloud shop as well because, you know, we're, I, I do think there's applications for a mixture because I don't think you're going to get a, a one-size-fits-all with any particular one. And that's just my opinion. There might be in the future be like a one-stop shop where like, oh, AWS has everything that we could ever need. No need to go anywhere else because mm-hmm. then you, you don't run into integration problems. Yeah. You don't run into security problems because you're trying to hodgepodge two things together. But I think, you know, multi-cloud is the way to go to, for right now. And what's interesting is, you know, if you're using AWS, then you probably have a multi-cloud situation. You're probably using some of some of those servers for like cloud email and whatnot. And that starts to lead into opportunities to use like a single sign-on uh, <laughs> yeah, service. Right. And then all of a sudden, you know, Microsoft and Google are starting to offer these single sign-on solutions. So it's home interesting. Gro- but that's a homegrown <laughs> use case. It's like from yeah. VendorLearn, it's like if everybody's asking for one feature, I'm going to give them that. And I'm going to put a price <laughs> tag on it. It's like <laughs> no-brainer. Right. But that's how you develop the market. But I want to ask you a challenging question I was discussing with one of my colleagues some time ago. When are we going to see the first cloud-based operating system? If you think about the number, I mean, AWS is a specific case. You have tons and tons of API that you can interact in, identity and access management. You have storage as a single service. That forms effectively almost an operating system by themselves. So right. you have like Cisco, almost syscalls. You can run your code in a, in a specific way right. and then interact with the various APIs. <laughs> yeah. If you abstract the concept of cloud, you almost can run a data center as an operating system. Right. That's very true. Interesting Is thought. It, do you have something <laughs> up your sleeve, sir? Not yet. <laughs> but in two years, we might come up with something. Yeah, that's interesting. We, we're working on something. It's like an idea, and a conceptual idea. So we're going towards that direction. And can we run complete serverless stuff in an ecosystem of things where you say, you know, you have your storage, you have your identity, you have your multi-factor, and just interacting with API like they are uh, Cisco. And then your core of application, it goes back to application security and application is just one thing. When you run completely serverless stuff, but interacting with the stuff that you need around the cloud, like completely atomic uh, environment. Right. So that's, that's something we're working on and see and see what works. How long do you think it would take for something like that to not only be available for people to get, but to have wide adoption? So you have a lot of people like putting into it, almost like an open source project. Like, do you think that's something that, that could happen or do you think it's a commercial tool? I think it's a mix. I think the market needs to be stimulated towards that direction. Like with the cloud, we had cloud push, cloud push, almost for five years and then all of a sudden the market picked up and right now it's almost the norm i'm not saying the norm but it is becoming the norm once the maturity is up there i think then we're going to start seeing crazy projects like this one on the cloud or 
new invention. It's like when everything, what the cloud is not anymore the forefront, the most advanced thing that you can do, but maybe it becomes the norm. Then you're going to see stuff evolving. That kind of reminds me of a uh, Chromebook in ways. Like it's yes, most, yeah. it's exactly, exactly. Like that that yep. was actually the first attempt. Yeah, and and when you introduce stuff like that, you're right. The security is pretty pretty seamless. Yeah, like all right, let me do my multi-factor, right. configure everything separately, and and it's disposable. So what they do in my in in Google, for example, they have travel Chromebook. So they just in wiped, and that's it. So right. they don't, Man. They, but it's, it's this it's possibility, amazing. it's this yeah. possibility that is crazy if you think from an end user perspective, but if you cloudify the most of it, then why do you need persistent data on your device? And it's like, why do you need to even have all that security on the endpoint? Right. It's like, you, you can have this possible uh, VDI-like uh, environment where, you know, all the data is, is centralized and secured in one location. Right, and now you get to a point where Compromising the endpoint is one thing, but actually getting to data is an entirely different beast. Exactly. It's a whole you different beast. You just separate effectively the endpoints and uh, you go to uh, zero trust if you want. We can talk about zero trust. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> actually, we've been having a lot of interesting conversations about zero trust. What are your thoughts? Uh, zero trust is a maturity. It's been out there since forever. I mean, Cisco has been putting zero trust like donkeys years ago. Mm -hmm. I think... Probably when I started my career, it's like 12, 15 years ago, Zero Trust was already there. It's like, it's a difficult concept to actually get in because the infra, I mean, not trusting your endpoint device is a really difficult concept to do because a lot of our compute right now is in a distributed way, it's on its own endpoint. We're going back to the mainframe. When we go mm -hmm. back to the mainframe, then you can start doing Zero Trust. So when you right. centralize everything, for example, in the cloud, then when you have Google with Zero Trust, mm -hmm. but it's an ecosystem where you say, you know what, I'm not going to have anything on your endpoint. I'm going to have everything centralized so your endpoint is disposable. And doing identity and profiling is really key. And identifying your, I mean, your users and what do they do in daily life is super complicated in a lot of organizations. If you don't nail that one down, how can you go down the route of uh, zero trust? How can you identify who your user are? And then you have like a passport of your user that goes in any kind of device and say, if you're these users, then you can access this information. But from an architectural perspective, and I don't know your experience, even doing like when you're starting a new project, even forcing the, the business team to actually say, who needs to do what on where? It's a super complicated answer. And keeping that information right. up to date is super complicated. So maybe you do analytics, maybe you do profiling, maybe you do something custom that's going to help that stuff. But zero trust is nothing new. It's like it's difficult to achieve because of the prerequisite. Right. So it will fly. It's a buzzword. It might fly, but it requires a lot of effort. Yeah, I think people get wrapped around the axle about zero trust. Some people think that zero trust means you don't trust anything, but that's impossible. No, it's impossible. Yeah, you have to trust a persona. You have to trust a token. You have to trust an identity, something, right? Ultimately, uh, it's the identity. It trusts in the, the identity or the persona. Right. So the persona is actually an interesting concept. Who knows the Jericho Forum? The Jericho Forum? Jericho Forum. Mm -mm, no. The Jericho Forum is actually the one that originally discussed about identities and personas. It was your identity and your persona. So who 
you have access to. It's kind of your passport is mm-hmm. different. Mm-hmm. And we're lucky in the Cloud Secure Alliance to have uh, the orig- one of the original Paul Simmons, one of the original members of the Jericho Forum. Wendy from uh, Dual Security is another one, is another mm-hmm. person, is really a driver for identity and uh, zero, uh, zero trust network or zero, yeah, zero trust network. So the concept is really interesting, but never picked up. It's a no concept and never picked up because the adoption is really, really hard. So identifying who you are and what you can access and how you can access is really difficult to define. Mm-hmm. And it's back on, on the discipline of defining that stuff at the beginning of the project. Right. Yeah. I, I've i like heard zero trust pitch like so many different ways by so many different terminologies. Mm-hmm. And Vendorland. Every- <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Vendorland. <laughs> <laughs> the everything is possible as long as you had the money. <laughs> Which buzzword do you need? <laughs> I will say it. <laughs> yeah. So for me, I, I love I love the cloud technology that's out there. I I like the fact that I my my device is more disposable. Yeah. Right. I like the disposability. It's great concept for security. Yeah. So I wanted to take uh, the, the last few minutes of the show and just kind of talk a little bit about uh, what you're doing for inclusion, what you're doing for outreach, like some, and then also let people know the ways to get in touch with you, follow the stuff that you sure. have going on, your podcast, all that stuff. Yes. So we're running, well, I'm doing a lot of keynotes. I have a page where I, I try to update as many as possible information about where my keynotes are. For the inclusion, I try to give away tickets like uh, running either exercise of who does the best speech or who does the best research or just if you're left out or if you never do uh, if you've never been into a conference just uh, come along and we, we I give my passes to to people and then mentoring monday or cyber mentoring monday podcast is another initiative where bring industry leader and you're going to be the next and wow. you're going to be the next <laughs> for next year Personal invite. Nah, um, we're there. Yes. Well, we're going to give back this kind of information. So podcast, sharing the knowledge, nuggets of information. That's, that's, that's my thing. It's like trying to, out, trying to reach out to as many people as possible. I love to make it personal. So it's like mentoring and one-to-one. But then it's always a challenge of time. And I, I hate to actually make a promise to somebody when I can't really follow or be there. So that's why we do the Mentoring Monday where we just, you know, it's, it's an hour podcast. We reply to question. And yeah, otherwise, LinkedIn, Twitter, like follow me at uh, FrankSec42 on Twitter and uh, Francesco Cipollone on LinkedIn. And yeah, that, I run most of my things there. It's like either with Follow Friday or with uh, Mentor content Monday. Mentoring Monday or the content yeah, like this. Right. I share uh, the video of my presentation to just give back to the community as much as I can. Yeah. And the Cloud Security Alliance. So we do a lot of yep. research paper, webinars. We're going to have our annual conference coming up in June, end of June next year. We're still deciding the location and the call for paper is going to be out in January. We might have the call for training between uh, a training on Google, AWS for serverless, Google for serverless as well, and maybe we're going to have Microsoft as well. So three stream Ooh. of conference completely for free for who want to join. Wow, free. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah, two days conference, and that's our promise with the Cloud Security Alliance. We do research, we do webinar. We tend to reach out to the majority of people, and it's completely non-for-profit. That wow. is excellent. Very cool. 
Francesco, thank you so much for being on the show. We finally made it happen. <laughs> yes. Glad you made it out here. Thank you so much for being on the show. And for everybody out there, thanks for listening. We'll see everybody next time. Ron, Chris, thank you, everybody. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Ciao. Uh, adios. <laughs> <laughs>